Awesome. So we'll get started with an intro. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's masterclass featuring Eden Rift. My name is Antoinette Landejean from Cork and Fork in Washington, D.C. We are a premium wine store founded by a multi-generational flying winemaker originally from Champagne, France. I am delighted to introduce today's producer, Eden Rift, represented this evening by owner Christian Pillsbury. Planted in 1849, Eden Rift is among the oldest continually producing estate vineyards in California. The vineyard is located remotely under the shadow of the Gavilan mountain range in the Sinaga Valley AVA. Christian Pillsbury is a native of San Francisco, and he developed a fascination with wine while working at a wine store. He had many uh, mentors, notably some of them would be the Tony Sutter um, and Jim Prosser, pretty impressive. Um, and Christian experienced winemaking in New Zealand uh, at two very significant wineries and also was an assistant winemaker over at Calera. For those joining us live, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Place your questions in the chat and we'll get to them time allowing. And we will move directly into the presentation. We have four beautiful wines to taste with you tonight, Christian, and we would love to hear everything you would like to share about your project. Sure, that brings me great joy. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Uh, greetings from sunny California. Um, it's been an absolutely beautiful growing season so far, and we're really looking forward to seeing what 2021 brings us. Uh, you know, you may have known that California for the last couple of years has had uh, craziness, whether it be fires or various things, uh, but this year's looking pretty darn good. So knock on wood, uh, don't want to risk it. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks again for bringing us in. Eden Rift is at its core a stewardship story. Um, my background is actually in the wine trade, started in wine shops. Mentor, if you will. Uh, and then I, I left the country, moved to France as a consultant, then I moved to Hong Kong where I uh, did a number of very interesting things. But every time I did something new, I hate to make the story about me, so it would only be for a moment. Every time I did something new, whether it be uh, you know running the global wine business for Duty Free or launching Coravin for Asia Pacific, uh, I found that the more, the more I went down the path of wine business, the further I got away from actual wine, the thing that I love, the thing that we all love. And so in 2016, uh, 2015, 2016, I made a decision based on watching legendary wine after legendary wine sell to private equity or large conglomerates. I mean, many of these people are friends, sure, but it, there was some sort of sadness uh, to seeing a state after a state lose its independence, uh, lose its individual direction. And so I started a process really around looking for one special place, one important place that I could save for one more generation. Uh, and stewardship is the name of the game. Uh, we came across uh, what is now Eden Rift uh, in mid-2016, and it was a beautiful, legendary estate that had kind of fallen on somewhat hard times. Uh, it's 500 acres. Uh, it is, here, I'll, actually, I can show you a couple of things. It's, it's 500 acres, 20 miles from um, Monterey Bay, two hours south of San Francisco. Uh, it's a 500-acre uh, contiguous estate. So the estate kind of wraps around like a bowl 
with a winery down at the bottom. And it's what we picture when we picture sort of a California estate. Um, and there are very few of them left. And this one was on the cusp of becoming a you know, large production vineyard for a, a very well-known winery. And I just felt like I couldn't let that happen. So I moved back to the United States, was able to work out a deal with the owners to take it over and let it be independent again and let it be independent and redevelop its, its, its reputation. Uh, it started, like you said, in 1849, but then you know, it was one of California's top five individual estates until about the end of the Second World War uh, when it was bought by an East Coast distribution company. And it was known at that point as Valiant Vineyards, but it's produced wine every year for 172 vintages consecutively, which also makes it California's oldest producing vineyard. After the Second World War, it disappeared a little bit from the collective memory. And so when Napa and Sonoma got started, which is really in the 60s and 70s, uh, this vineyard was already very old, but largely forgotten. And so our mission, our story is really about trying to reestablish its halcyon days, put it back where it was uh, in the 1940s, uh, represented nationally, um, and we're super excited to be in DC, represented nationally, represented internationally, and uh, also with a wonderful direct relationship with a lot of, of collectors. Um, we are 70% Pinot Noir uh, with the remainder of Chardonnay, uh, a bit of Pinot Gris and a bit of 1906 planted Zinfandel. Uh, and the other interesting thing about our vineyards is we're about 20% terraces and terraces are incredibly rare in California and actually can't really be cut anymore because uh, of, of environmental concerns. So they're grandfathered in. Uh, so there will not be future sort of terrace dominant estates. Um, and I think that you know, three of my favorite Chardonnay vineyards in California are, are terrace vineyards. One was uh, the Terraces Vineyard in, in, at Mayacamas, which was torn out in 2013. One is the Ambassador Vineyard at Hanzel. And then the third is, is uh, our Terrace Chardonnay Vineyard, our, our T-Block, which is only three acres. So it's, it's a drop in the bucket of the world of Chardonnay. So let me show you a few little slides here to kind of give you some visual on this place. And then let's taste some wine. Uh, let's see, I'll try to do this effectively. I'm better at wine than I am at tech. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> which is good for all of us, I think. Um, so Eden Rift is a terribly ugly place, as you can see here. Uh, that's the winery down there uh, to the left. Let's see, uh, how do I... Maybe I do this. Ah, there we go. So this is our 1906 Zinfandel. Goes all the way back. It is dry farmed. The only thing those irrigation tubes are used for is basically to relieve the vine just at the end of harvest, give it a little bit of water after we pull off the fruit, just because vine health here, as the entire state, vine health is our number one priority. Uh, everything else comes after because, of course, the vines are going to continue to give for years and years and years, uh, and we need to take care of them. Here's where we are. In case you haven't been to Hollister, California or, San, or uh, the Cienega Valley, you will be forgiven because not that many people have been. Um, so I find it's quite useful here. I can't always tell where the Appalachians and Central Coast are in relation to one another. Uh, so I find this useful. Uh, we're just east of Monterey, just south of San Francisco, uh, right along this very cold body of water, uh, the Monterey Bay, which gives us this uh, very, very cool influence coming over the hills uh, to replace inland uh, air that's rising. So it's very similar to the way the airflow happens in Sonoma Coast, uh, it was a similar idea. Um, 
And it is colder where we are than, for instance, it is in Anderson Valley uh, or certainly Sonoma Coast. Uh, our average temperature on an annual basis is 56 degrees if you integrate 365 days, uh, 24 hours a day. So it's it's too cold for Merlot, too cold for Cal for Cabernet. I'd love to be able to you know grow Cabernet, but it ain't gonna happen for us. Uh, and so we're we're tailor made for um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. There's another view, so you can kind of see where we are with that red dot. So we're the northernmost winery within our very small Appalachian, which only contains two wineries. Uh, and next to us is also uh, Calera. Uh, Josh Jensen was an old, old friend and had a hand in helping me find this place. And this is our estate essentially from, from a flyover. If you were flying uh, from San Francisco to, if you were flying from uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco and you were sitting on the left-hand side of the plane looking out, this is what you'd see. Uh, and so each one of these, so you can see it's a very undulating property. We have a lot of different aspects. You can see where the terraces have to kick in just to allow us to farm on hillsides. Uh, and so the purple areas are Pinot Noir, um, orange is Chardonnay. Uh, this is my dog, Sam. <laughs> uh, but really not about, not so much about the dog, although he's, he's really, she's only uh, camouflaged for one environment, which is this, which is, uh, this is the dolomite quarry, uh, limestone and dolomite quarry that's right next to our vineyard. We exist on a dolomite band a limestone band that runs just under us, uh, then over to Calera and down towards Shalone. But there are only two places in California with, uh, with limestone available for vineyard production. Uh, and those are uh, where we are in Cienega Valley and then Paso Robles, which is why, for instance, Bocastel put Tablas Creek there. Now, of course, um, Paso Robles is just too warm for uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, so they're doing Rhone, but the reason why Paso is so delicious to a large extent is because of these soils. The same thing goes for us in Cienega Valley. Uh, let's see, there we go. And then here, this map will show you kind of the, the way the blocks all work. So dominant Pinot, a uh, little bit of Chardonnay, but because we are a single estate, uh, when you get to our single vineyard wines, you can actually taste the difference barrel to barrel with a 200 foot change in where you're standing on the property. So between clonal differences uh, and between uh, aspect and, and slope differences, you can absolutely identify by taste from the barrel where, the, where that wine came from within a very, very small area. Now I wanna talk a little bit about clones as we're gonna to get toward wine. Uh, we believe that Pinot Noir is a, is a family of wines. Uh, this is Corey, by the way. And I'm just going to flip through these and then we'll, I'll talk to you straight up. Okay, so I'm going to end that and I'm going to, uh, am I back? Did this work? Okay, great. So um, when you, we're dominant Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. I think Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, who are very close cousins, uh, I, Pinot Chardonnay is its real name. Um, I think of Pinot Noir as a category or a family of wines, not or grapes, not as a single variety. Uh, we have eight different clones of Pinot Noir on a property. Um, and so that's a mix of both Dijon clones and uh, California heritage clones. And if you look to the way Pinot Noir is made in Burgundy, we call it a single variety, but it really isn't. Uh, Burgundy is constructed of Marcel selections within vineyard after vineyard after vineyard. Part of the reason Amoureux tastes different from Musigny, tastes different from Claude Bougeot, is not just their slope. Their slopes are relatively similar. It's not just uh, their subsoils, which are also relatively similar. It is to, a, to an extent due to 
the Masal selections, the types of Pinot Noir that are being grown in these vineyards are really brought over from other vines. If you, if you replace a vine, you're bringing over vines from near, uh, nearby, bringing the cuttings in that are already in the vineyard. And so there's basically, there's a, there's a Latash clone functionally or a set of Latash clones that blend to make the flavor of that place. Same with Emeraz, same with Muzni, same with everybody. For us, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we don't have 500 years of clonal differentiation that's happened on our estate. So we are approximating this by saying, okay, we're gonna have uh, Dijon clones, which have been identified in Burgundy and they're named after the university in Dijon. So clones like 828-115-777-667. I can go through all the, name, the numbers if you want, but it's not important. And then, uh, you know, those are, each one is different. So 828 is gonna be sort of, for us, very aromatic. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to have great sort of uh, uh, intense base note, but it's going to be short for us. And it's going to have a little bit of mid palate weakness texturally. And so what do you do about that? Well, you use 667 and you use triple uh, seven. And each one of these is going to have maybe not the greatest aromatics or strong aromatics. Maybe it's not going to have, uh, you know, a long finish, but it's going to have extraordinary texture or it'll have something else that it's like almost blending a perfume. And so you're going to put this together. And so Eden Rift's estate wines. So we're going to talk about four wines today, Eden Rift, estate Pinot Noir and Valiant line or estate line and Valiant line. So the estate wines are a chorus that represent all the voices of all the clones of all the vineyards within our estate. And so when we are, we, we go in and we're going to do, we're going to grow conscientiously through the year and each block is treated separately. Uh, we try to get down to each row or each vine being treated separately as it needs. Grow through the year, harvest based on numbers, but mainly on, on flavor. We pick only at night. We're gonna bring the grapes in cold to the winery. We are going to uh, do a cold soak just by dint of the fact that at night harvest, it's cold as hell. So <laughs> uh, these grapes take a while to warm up enough to begin fermentation. So we're not actually using any cooling. We are using indigenous yeast. We are using no enzymes. We are absolutely natural winemakers, uh, extremely lazy winemakers. Um, we're using no we're using no techniques beyond stainless steel that haven't been in business for two hundred years. Then we will let the ferments happen individually in small open top uh, vessels, and then it gets flowed into barrel, and it will rest unmolested in barrel for basically eleven months. Uh, we're not really able to manipulate it at all. We don't choose to manipulate it at all in barrel. Uh, the ML will happen as it happens naturally. Uh, and then we'll basically look at each barrel and each barrel lot, and we'll do an assemblage that really helps us tell the story of what Eden Rift is for that vintage. Uh, and that for me is exciting. That is, that is the art of winemaking. We also have wines where it's that wine, that, that single vineyard goes into a single lot and goes into a single bottle. And there, it is a different way to tell a story. It's almost like a soloist, but the the estate is like a chorus or a a, uh, a harmony. Um, Chardonnay, very similarly, we don't mess with it. No botanage, uh, no enzymes, no indigenous. It's all indigenous yeast. We do not inoculate ML. ML happens on its own. And this last year, we had actually a couple of barrels with the ML finished before the primary fermentation. Not supposed to happen that way. But what are you going to do? right? If you believe in natural winemaking, you have to let it happen. 
Now we don't often talk about natural winemaking because I don't want to have to make an apology that sometimes is indicated, right? We don't have a VA problem. We don't have a pretendomyces problem. So I don't really want to talk about that too much, but I do believe in wines that make themselves. And I do believe in the estate being the primary actor in all of this. We're just custodians or guardians or stewards to bring that word back. Now, at the end, we, I don't know if it's important for you guys, but at the end, just so you know, uh, the Pinot Noir is, um, is, is fined with egg whites, a uh, very traditional method. The uh, Chardonnay is not uh, fined. So the Chardonnay is actually vegan in case anybody cares. <laughs> um, now let's talk about how these wines actually taste. Now I'm not gonna drink all the wines with you, but you know, I'll give myself a little bit of a, a splash. Um, we'll start with the Chardonnays. So the Chardonnay, similar process, we are using five different clones. Uh, it's gonna be from three, four, four blocks on the estate, five clones. We pick at night on flavor ripeness, uh, bring it in cold. And the reason we pick it at night is uh, one, so that um, uh, we, it's a more pleasant experience for our team uh, who are out there. There are no bugs, there's no heat, there's no dust, there's no, you know, it's, it's much more um, humane. But then also the vines um, express more acidity in the grapes at night. They kind of shut down their photosynthesis and the vine is dormant. And so that can actually change a little bit the chemistry of the grape as we're picking it. And then we can bring it in and the winery team is ready to go. We don't have to use cold rooms and we don't have to leave the grapes sitting in the sun, um, kind of losing the benefit of having picked them carefully. Uh, they're brought in, we do a light pressing with Chardonnay and then we uh, flow it to tank. And from tank, we put it directly into barrel. It will sit in the barrel that it is put into that, you know, You've got 25 cases of wine functionally in a barrel. So that little block of wines is gonna flow into the barrel and it's gonna sit in that barrel doing its own thing for 11 months. We are not gonna really open the barrel per se, except to just make sure that it is healthy, right? It's kind of like bowling with bumpers, I suppose. Um, we wanna make sure that, that nothing goes offline. Every year, if, if something happens that's strange or we don't like it, those barrels can be pulled out of the program and they'll go other places uh, and not, not stay with us. Um, but it's relatively rare. We're very tidy winemakers. Flows through 11 months. And then we, you know, Corey and I uh, blend it to um, the, uh, the estate Chardonnay. And then under the estate Chardonnay, we'll do the Valiant. And so the estate is the primary voice of what we do. Valiant is around being a little bit more accessible it doesn't have any new oak. Oh, by the way, our estate only goes 20% new oak. Um, has, Valiant has no new oak, uh, but it'll have, have the same quality. It is a state, even though it's appellated Central Coast. Um, and it is, we think, way over delivers, delivers on quality. We're very proud of it. Uh, um, it's just accessible in a different way, both price point and stylistically. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead here. Now, one of the things that I've really discovered about our Chardonnays is that they are extremely crystalline in terms of their ability to show everything that we do. I'm not gonna tell you what I smell and what I taste because everybody doing this is professional and can do it themselves. You know, you know what you drink, you've done it enough. And I hate when people tell me what I'm supposed to be tasting. Um, but what I will tell you is, is that we have to be so cautious with these wines because anything we do shows. 
20% new oak, it still expresses oak. But if we did any more than that, you'd get nothing else. That minerality that comes through, we're not doing anything crazy to embrace that. If we can get like a, like a Shasanya or a Merso minerality and density coming out, I'll be a very happy man. But it'll happen because the estate did the heavy lifting, not us. So with all of our wines, including this one, what we're looking for is uh, density, length, texture. Those for me are what wine is really about. Uh, as the English would call it, it's more-ish. You want to have more of it. <laughs> That's a word I love. We're not chasing power. We're not chasing color. We're not chasing opulence. It's California and you're going to get that kind of no matter what you do. Um, we get plenty of sunlight. So we don't have to worry about those things. What we do have to worry about is grace and elegance and sort of that, that point between being fresh and bright and Moorish and being lean and impoverished and meager. Um, because if you overdo it, you can end up with a wine where you've taken all the joy out in pursuit of some sort of philosophical desire or philosophical destination. Uh, so we, we watch this very closely. Now, now, Antoinette, do you have any questions at this point or are you, all right. No, pretty much uh, rolling with you. It's, it's so far so good. Very good. Well, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like my mother, I'm just talking. Uh, so <laughs> don't tell her I said that. And so um, then you go to our Pinot Noirs and the Pinot program is different, but the same. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are co close, close cousins or siblings, right? Uh, they come, you know, uh, Chardonnay is just a, a, a genetic derivation of, of Pinot Noir. We're growing them basically the same way. Now in Pinot Noir, there is an added dimension, of course, where we're, we're letting that run through. Uh, we're doing the harvest, right? And we're farming each block separately. Each clone is farmed separately, some on terraces, some on, on the sort of broader plane on the bottom. Um, we're watching, watching the vines closely. I don't believe in dry farming for Pinot Noir. If you've ever been to Burgundy in the summer, it ain't dry. Uh, and so I find that when you dry farm Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, it's, it's philosophically cool, but I feel that you lose varietal character very quickly and you end up with kind of blocky red wine and blocky white wine. I do not want that. What we want is for each clone to express itself as finely as possible because it gives us the most options as we move forward. It gives us the most opportunity to tell a compelling story about the estate. So we're gonna farm all of these individually. And then we're gonna do over the course of maybe a month, block by block, essentially row by row, we're going to be picking by hand, bringing the grapes in coal, just like with Chardonnay, giving them to the winemaking team, and they'll be basically bring them in and we put them in um, open top fermenters, uh, you know, five, two and a half and five ton open top fermenters. So relatively small. We do uh, about 30% whole cluster on our estate and 30% new oak. New oak will come later. For the whole cluster that is brought in for the, for the open tops, it's kind of exciting because with Pinot Noir, you don't want to pump over. 
right? Because it's pretty harsh and, and harshness is the enemy of elegance in some ways in Pinot. And so what we're doing is we're gonna be punching down, uh, you know, um, pijage, I guess is the thing. And so we're gonna be punching down. We are going to, uh, with, the, with the stemmed portion, that's easy, right? Uh, you just, we have big pneumatic punch down machines and all is great. With the, with the whole cluster, it's really hard because the stems weave together like this and create an impenetrable mat on the top of the tank. And you need to submerge the mat because that's where both all of your grape skins are, which have your colors and phenolic, color and phenolics and flavors and all that stuff. But also the stems play a really important role, otherwise we wouldn't use them, of giving us an additional uh, type of, uh, of tannin, uh, an, an additional grip, an additional structural element. Uh, but if you try to use the pneumatic press on them when they're woven like this, yes, it'll work, but it's going to tear them apart and it's going to, it's going to release some really roughness, a, a really rough tannin, a roughness, um, breaking stems, breaking seeds, that kind of thing. So what we do instead is um, we deploy interns <laughs> and we basically get them up there on a ladder, toss them in, you know, hose them down citric acid, they're there in their underwear and in they go. And the, the basic protocol is they stay in there until their lips turn blue. And it seems to work out great. I mean, I do it too, but <laughs> everybody has purple legs by the end of harvest because um, we all take turns. But you do that for a few days because that's the only way you can gently reincorporate that, uh, that matted um, uh, uh, mat or the, the, the woven uh, stems. And so then after that point, then you can start to do pneumatic press down or punch down. Um, we do a ferment of about 14 days and then we flow it into barrel. And again, it will remain that lot. will go into a set of barrels and those barrels will remain unmolested uh, until we do the final blend uh, after 11 months. And so it's very, very simple winemaking. We have an extremely small winery crew. Um, for us, it's about paying attention more than doing anything. If we can, if we can accomplish this with doing nothing, that is truly our philosophical goal. Now, the character of our Pinot Noir is going to be, we're looking for something again that is reflective of the estate, but also reflective of the of the core nature of Pinot Noir, the thing that we love about Pinot Noir. We don't want Pinot Noir to be something that it isn't. Pinot Noir is a grape of light color and finesse and elegance and length. And so that's what we embrace. And so we are looking for wines that are going to be, uh, yeah, graceful, long, usually a bit light in color, um, and sort of have, for me, something I love is there should be like a little ribbon of sort of a vegetable character in the center because that provides freshness and sort of a backbone. Um, if you have perfect, this is gonna be a really, uh, a controversial statement I've never made before. So bear with me. If you allow Pinot Noir to go to California ripeness, I feel like you lose its ability to be fresh. And so we really focus on balancing between total ripeness, but also leaving just a tiny, tiny bit. And sometimes it's from stems, sometimes it's from something else, but we're looking for just that tiny, tiny little bit of like vegetal ribbon through the center. And I can't think of a great burgundy that I've ever had that didn't have that element, but we're afraid of it in California. And um, well, since we don't have anybody looking over our shoulders for how we make wine, we're gonna do it. <laughs> and I'm very proud of it. Um, 
the wines don't taste like anywhere else. Now here, I'll give you a little bit of thought on what I do taste because now that you've all had the Pinot, what I see is the terroir of Sienega Valley is unique. It doesn't taste like Sonoma. It doesn't taste like Burgundy. It doesn't taste like Anderson Valley. It doesn't taste like Russian River. Each one of those places I can taste in my mind. Russian River tastes like cherry cola and it's got wonderful thing, but I know when I'm tasting Rocchioli. I know exactly what it's going to like. I know what it's going to taste like. It's delicious, but I can't grow that where I am. And so what we're going to, so our wines, what I find is they have a taste of sort of like there's dried rose petal and there's sort of a, a, a brushiness or an herbal character uh, and maybe bergamot and black tea. And so it's, it's very different from, from, the pinots that you traditionally find in different parts of California. So I apologize for giving you tasting notes. Hopefully you already tried it before you did that. Um, but I think it's an important distinction. Now, moving forward into the future for Eden Rift, we really don't plan on changing anything if we can help it. Um, our recipe, if you will, our, our strategy, our plan for stewardship is a plan that unfolds over a lifetime. And so I will be there as long as they let me and Corey will be there as long as he can. And we don't have a short-term plan. We just have a plan to make this estate's wines the best we can for as long as we can in the way that they're meant to be made. And, and since we're in the middle of nowhere, we're largely untouched by trends. So we've got no outside pressure. Yeah. Excellent. That, that was a nice uh, a summary. And since, um, and usually when we do these uh, events, we try to stay very neutral because, um, you know, it's difficult to know which direction someone's leaning. But you have mentioned the word stewardship at least five times here. So, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> to me, that indicates that you are really someone who does care very much for the land, as the majority of winemakers and, and uh, viticulturists and agriculturists do. But for you, it seems to be quite personal. So um, looking into the future, since you do wish to stay there for an extended period, and looking at what the world is currently facing, and what your region, especially California, the challenges that California is facing, what do you think are your biggest uh, problems that are headed your way um, as far as nature or- Fantastic question. Yeah, any sort of changes, whether it's governmental or whether it's natural, what would you say? It's a fantastic question. Um, vines don't know anything about pandemics. Right. I mean, our vineyard is untouched by the idea of a pandemic. It, it affected our lives profoundly last year, but the vineyard doesn't really care. Buyers, they are really inconvenient, uh, but vineyards don't really burn. So we were we were basically untouched by fire last year. But I, I have a lot of friends who were who lost who lost their whole year's production. But it didn't really affect the vineyard. And didn't really affect their appellations. I mean, fires are an inconvenience on a human scale. The biggest change is going to be um, definitely uh, climate change as it affects our access to water. We're on wells and we do believe in, in sensible irrigation. We've reduced water use over the last five years, four years, four, 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 four and a half. We've reduced water use on our property by 80% uh, in preparation for a drier future. 
and I think that's really important. There are a lot of wonderful technologies out there, uh, especially being you know uh, uh, established in, in places like Israel, which have no choice and have amazing sort of water focus. But then also with climate change, if I, I mentioned that we are that we have a, a very specific understanding of what our degree days are, what our warmth is. The vineyard land will continue to be there forever. Uh, it's meant to be a vineyard. But there is a question if in 20 years we're growing Pinot Noir or not, right? And I hate to say that. It's been growing Pinot Noir since 1861. It's the first Pinot Noir vineyard in California. But there may be a day when it's no longer appropriate. First thing that would change would be our style would probably get fatter. There are things we can do to ameliorate that. But at some point, if it really gets warm, we won't be able to do it. So we, I, uh, two years ago, started a experimental plot of four acres where we're planting Grenache, Syrah, and Mauvain, uh, and additional planting of Zinfandel, uh, basically because we need to learn how to make those wines in, an, in a way that, we're, that incorporates Eden Riff's vision and philosophy. Our philosophy can survive a change in variety but we have to be ready for that. Is that a fair answer? It's a very honest answer. I mean, it scares the hell out of us, but there's nothing I can do on an individual basis to, to change that future. It's a wonderful answer. Um, the main reason being that um, it highlights how versatile viticulture really is as far as being able to adapt long-term by accommodating any changes with uh, varietal changes, given you do have a three to five year break that you're going to take depending on your first uh, harvest, but still it shows how resilient the wine industry truly is. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Um, we have plenty of people that come out to visit you guys over in California from our group. Um, do you have um, a way to receive visit visitors or not yet? Yes, we yeah. absolutely do. So I mean, it's a beautiful estate. It's, you know, it's 500 acres, 120 acres of vineyards. Uh, we do every, every, we're completely vertically integrated in the winery. Everything from the sunlight to the bottling wine is right there. Uh, we are self-sufficient. We also have a, uh, a beautiful estate home built in 1906. Um, which, you know, with lawns wrapping around where we, where we receive guests, where we'd be delighted to host you guys to do a big barbecue lunch and bring you all in. Um, you know, on, on occasion, we even have people stay over. So. Excellent. Perfect. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to, to visit us tonight. And we look forward to sending many people over to visit you. And next time you come to DC, please, please come visit us when you uh, visit with Stephen and, and Constantine Wine. So we look forward very much to seeing you in person. It's and, my great joy to meet you. Yeah, have a wonderful evening. I'm going to go ahead and end the meeting for all. And thanks again for your time. Thank you. See you. Good night. Good night.